Welcome, one and all, to another episode of the Two Tongues Podcast. Chris again, coming at you with my radio voice uh, for another solo episode. Um, I gave you guys a little bit of a teaser on the last one that I was going to get into uh, to physics. So I'm going to try to do that today, but I have to be up, up front and honest with you. Anybody who knows anything uh, technical about physics, um, I'm just going to apologize to you guys right now. Um, I'm a, I'm a interested obviously, but an amateur. I mean, this is something that, um, that I've been getting into over the last couple of years. Uh, a lot of the information that I've gathered, uh, on quantum physics that I find interesting have to do with some of the unexplained mysteries about, um, you know, physicists lack of understanding about, uh, you know, how the, how the world came to be, um, the things they don't understand about the kind of physical laws that, uh, govern, uh, govern the, the universe. And so much of that stuff, uh, fits really well in with, um, the mystic experience and some of the ideas that I've brought up before, you know, about the way I understand God and some of those things. And I just thought it was really interesting that so many of these kind of mysteries of, uh, of, of quantum physics and physics in general, um, they, they seem like they might be answered by, or at least have, um, a, a better understanding. Uh, if you, if you read those ideas in the context of the, of a mystic experience and, and talking about consciousness in the way that I do, which is basically synonymous with God. Um, so I'm going to get into that, but again, I want to, I want to, I want to mention off the, uh, off the front here that, um, um, the math behind all this stuff, uh, I don't understand. I'm going to dance around that. I'm not going to get into that, uh, in any detail because I just wouldn't be able to effectively talk about it. Um, you know, math's not a, not a strong suit for me and, uh, something I'd love to learn more about, uh, but don't have the, don't have the time, uh, or energy to kind of do it justice. So I'm going to stick with the concepts and do my best to talk about it. Um, the good news is I, I listened to a lot of, a lot of podcasts. I watched a lot of documentaries on, uh, on physics and space over the years. And a lot of that information, uh, I absorbed that way. You know, it's, it's, it's made for public consumption. So it's supposed to be easy to understand, um, and using stories and stuff to talk about all the complicated math. And so that's what I'm going to do. Um, I'm going to do my best. So again, apologize to all anybody who might who might uh, have a physics background or uh, be competent in this kind of math. Uh, that's not that's not that's not what you're going to get here today. Uh, but I think when we go through these examples that I'm going to talk about today, what you do find is that um, there's a lot of evidence uh, supporting uh, what I said in a previous so solo podcast about you know uh, reality not quite being what we think it is. Maybe it's Maybe it's much more than we think it is, but it's definitely much more complicated than we think it is, much more complex. And uh, um, a lot of times when we talk about physics, um, you know, especially physicists, they want to they want to talk about that like it's a, a riddle that we've almost solved, like we've got our head wrapped around almost everything, and we have all these equations that tell us. Um, that tell us kind of explain what we see in in the world, and so we have some sort of bearing to talk about. You know, we know how how the cosmos came to be, and we we know. The truth is, we don't know. There's so many holes in the math, so many holes in the theories. 
that uh, I'll try to point out as we go through. Um, but, the, but the truth is that when we look at these examples, what we will find is that reality isn't what we expect it to be. And there's something, there's some mystery there that has to be explained. Um, quantum physics tries to explain that and I think does a good job and, and makes some interesting points with some of the experiments, but doesn't really answer those questions um, that they kinda, they're kind of left to be mysteries. And the f- most frustrating part about it when you listen to these physicists is that they they don't want to tackle that idea. They, they want to focus on um, you know the progress we've made and what they do know and minimize the mysteries that we don't have answers to yet. And I, I remember watching... Uh, I think it might have been it might have been Cosmos with uh, uh, with Neil deGrasse Tyson, um, but but maybe not. It definitely was Neil deGrasse Tyson, and they were talking about um, they were talking about the questions that people bring up, uh, the holes that they bring up in uh, our understanding of quantum physics and astronomy and all the stuff that goes on in outer space, like, like black holes and stuff that we don't we don't understand. Um, and it was interesting to hear Neil deGrasse Tyson basically say. Um, you know those 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 objections aren't important. You're, you're kind of missing the point. You you want to focus on, you know, uh, what we have been able to uncover. All these powerful pieces of information that are allowing us to do all kinds of crazy things with technology and space travel and all kinds of stuff like that. And you know, point taken. Uh, but it doesn't erase the questions and the idea that a, a scientist like Neil deGrasse would say that those aren't ideas that we should be focusing on the, the the ones that are the holes the ones that we need answers to that we shouldn't be focusing on those because they're minor and we've got basically most of the puzzle put together already what, what kind of what kind of message is that you know what kind of message is that we're just going to leave leave a couple of mysteries there we're not going to explore them we're, we don't want to open up that pandora's box we just want to focus focus on the idea that we've got it mostly figured out and that'll make us feel better bullshit neil you know, if you ask yourself a question that you don't know the answer to, the truth is you don't know how deep that mystery goes. And if you have to find the answer to this one little hole in the in the in the physics puzzle, you have no idea how that might undermine every other you know theory uh, that you're confident we know for sure. You know, all it takes is one observation, one experiment to give you a result you didn't expect to throw a mon- monkey wrench into all of our so-called understanding. So I don't want to diminish or belittle science or physics. I love it, and I think it adds a lot um, to the discussion about God and consciousness. Uh, so I want to get into it. Uh, but I do want, as we kind of begin, we're going to talk a lot about physics. I just want to remind you that I have to do a little bit of this background but we're so that we kind of are on the same page. But at the end, I'm going to talk about how these ideas intertwine with kind of a mystic understanding of God, you know, God as as consciousness or something like that. So here we go. I'll give you a little bit of an intro. Um, I mentioned before a guy named uh, Brian Green. Uh, he's a physicist, but a popular guy like Neil deGrasse Tyson. He's doing you know a lot of a lot of books, a lot of documentaries. Um, he's he's one of those guys that that tries to make physics and science approachable and so that regular people can understand it and kids can get inspired by it and want to become scientists and all that sort of thing. Um, and the reason I picked uh, these quotes from Brian Greene is, be- well, for that reason that he's, you know, he's easy to understand, but also uh, because he, um, in a documentary I watched on on uh, CuriosityStream, and I'm sure you can get it other places, it's called Exploring Quantum History. 
a documentary from 2015, and he basically explains um, the idea of quantum physics from the beginning. And I thought a little bit of a cursory uh, definition might help. So here we go. He talks about a guy named Max Planck. So the Max Planck was early 1900s, one of the early physicists, uh, extremely famous and influential in the in the realm of uh, of quantum physics specifically. Um, and you you may wonder why. And and well, he's the guy that coined the the word quanta. So that's where we get quantum physics from. So there you go. Uh, but about about Max uh, Planck, um, he was the one that dis- that uh, made the discovery that that energy doesn't travel in a continuous wave. So when we see, you know, uh, when we imagine like light waves from the sun coming down to earth, um, it's easy to kind of imagine this wave, this continuous kind of not, not a straight line, obviously, but a, but a waved line coming from the sun right down to your eyeballs. And that's sort of how um, physicists believed that energy traveled in a straight line. Um, what Max Planck discovered is that, well, that's true, kind of. It's true and it's not true. What he found out was that when he did these experiments to test that, that it wasn't a continuous wave. Yes, it did seem to be that energy was moving in a wave, but not a continuous wave. What, it, what he was able to find was that there was only a certain amount of energy that had to sort of accumulate, let's say, before it could be released to move along that uh, that wave line. So you can imagine like, and I, I, this is again, apologies to all the physicists out there, but this is how my mind imagines it. You can kind of imagine like a wave line from the sun down to your eye and imagine um, a particle, like a, a dot moving along that line. So, so this is kind of what I'm imagining. Um, what Max Planck says is that that little dot that's moving along the waved line, that's a little packet of energy. The reason it's a dot is because it's a it's a discrete packet of energy. That's what he calls a quanta. Okay. Um, you guys may may have heard of obviously the word quantum before, uh, but you may have also heard the word photon. So I want to bring up that photon is a type of quanta. It's a quanta of light specifically. So you might have other energy uh, that that maybe has a different name for the quanta that it represents. Uh, but for light, we, we'll call it a photon, so you may have heard that before. So long story short, the word quantum comes from quanta, and the discovery surrounding that word is just that energy does not move in a continuous wave, but in little packets of energy. Um, I don't know what you think about that, guys, but it, you know, I just can imagine being one of these physicists and asking the question, why is it that way? And of course, that's what caused a lot of the experiments to um, be developed that generated quantum theory and all the crazy string theory and stuff that we have today eventually came from trying to answer that question. Uh, why does energy flow only in these discrete packets? Um, well, I don't really know the answer to that question, but um, what comes to my mind is like a um, like sitting underneath a, uh, a roof in the rain and just kind of watching the rain drops um, drip one by one, kind of from the corner of the roof, let's say. And in my mind, I'm thinking, you know, every rain drop's probably um, about the same uh, mass or weight, let's say, because the water is accumulating and accumulating, and once it gets heavy enough for gravity to pull it off of that rooftop, uh, there's a word for that, surface tension or something that they call that. But when you um, when it's heavy enough to kind of break free from that um, 
from that rooftop, that that drop that comes down and hits the ground is probably approximately the same weight of every single drop that falls down. So the idea is that it needs to have a certain amount of water in the drop before it can drip. And this is how I imagine quanta. There's got to be a certain amount of energy before it can travel down that, down that line. Okay, so long story short, that's where quanta com- comes from. And uh, in this same documentary, uh, Brian Greene says this. He's trying to describe to us um, where these, uh, the, these rules that we're going to talk about, these, the quantum physics that we're going to talk about, like where does that come into play? Where do, where do, we, where do we have to deal with that? And most people know it's on really, really small scales. So we're not, we're not talking about quantum physics in the sense of, you know, um, uh, throwing a ball or, or shooting a, shooting a cannon or something. And like the, the physics behind all of that motion, that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about very, very small objects where the rules that govern everything else doesn't, it's different changes for these, uh, these very small objects. And what Brian Greene says is, at scales of 10 to the minus 10 meters or so. So, again, the math is over my head, but 10 to the minus 10, I can sort of picture mathematically. Um, Doing the math and writing out the number of zeros that it might be there, um, I could probably do that, and it would probably be a very large number. Uh, But once you add so many zeros and so many commas to a number, it, it loses all meaning to me. So suffice it to say, 10 to the minus 10 meters is probably very, very, very small. Um, smaller, smaller than we could probably, probably easily imagine. And he goes on to say, at those tiny scales, every process is going to reveal the quantum nature of the universe. So what he's saying basically is, you can look, you can watch things happening at scale. You know, like you can look around, you can see, um, like I said, uh, how a, how a baseball moves if you throw it, you know, from one person to another, or uh, you know how heat how heat works in a furnace, or how electricity moves in a system, or how the planets orbits work and gravity. You can talk about all those sorts of things, and all of the rules and the math behind that doesn't work on the quantum level. It doesn't work on these very small scales. There's something else and weird going on. And this is what the quantum physicists were trying to figure out. Why, when we zoom down to these micro scales, do all the rules of nature go out the window? Everything Newton told us about force and energy and mass and all that stuff's just nonsense at at the small scales. It doesn't actually work. What? Why? And this is what we're getting at. All right, so Brian Greene goes on to say about quantum mechanics, he says, It's a body of physical law developed in the early part of the 20th century by a single generation of physicists in order to have an accurate description of how particles behave in the microscopic realm. So, again, I'm just pointing out here that there was a uh, group of people in the early 1900s uh, all the way up through the, you might say, the 30s, and it included people like Einstein, uh, people like Niels Bohr, uh, people like uh, Werner Heisenberg, if you heard any of these names, you know, the Heisenberg uncertainty principle, that kind of thing. Um, all of these all of these guys were working on this quantum stuff together, um, again, including, including Einstein. Uh, and then, and then Brian Green goes on to talk about electrons because when we're talking about electrons, um, we find we're finally getting down to a small enough scale where the the quantum rules are going to apply. And when he's talking about electrons, he says, "Hey, electrons they they exist in quantum clouds surrounding the nucleus of an atom." 
So he's describing that there's this there's this particle, this electron, and on these very small scales, you know, on the atomic level, that this electron doesn't exist like a particle. It doesn't exist like a you know like a marble or something that's that's spinning around the the atom. It exists in a cloud that it's it's sort of here and there and everywhere around this atom. And it might be in one place and it might be another and actually might be in all of them all you know simultaneously. It's very unclear that on the quantum level things don't exist like they do in in at scale in the real world. That they don't exist in a point in space and time that they kind of exist in many possible spaces and times. Very, very weird. All right, so get a little little bit of an idea around uh, the word quanta, kind of where this started, and the the people and the um, types of problems that they were dealing with trying to figure out uh, what is meant by all this quantum, quantum mechanics, quantum physics business. And what I thought I'd do next is actually talk about some of those problems that they were trying to uh, to tackle because, well, I, I kind of handpicked the ones. There, there are others, obviously. I picked like four of them that I want to talk about, some of them in more detail than others. But the first one here is, you, you guys may have heard this one before, and I may have talked about it in a prior podcast, um, but it's really fundamental to this whole thing. So it's called uh, particle wave duality. And, and the experiment that people remember about this, it's called the double slit experiment. So if, if I've explained this before, if you've heard this before, I, I apologize. I'll, I'll try to keep it uh, short and sweet. But the idea here is um, we, we want to try to understand um, what these tiny quantum particles are like. We want to kind of understand that. We know that energy moves in these waves like we talked about earlier. So, what, so an experiment was devised here to try to figure out kind of what... what uh, how do we how do we reconcile the idea that particles are moving in a wave pattern, uh, but they exist as, as these discrete packages? You know, they only come in certain sizes. Like, what what is that about? So here, this double slit experiment was basically done like this. Um, you're going to create uh, conditions in the experiment where you've got um, basically a um, um, a source of um, of electrons or a source of light. In this case, these these electrons are being shot out um, at a screen, and so you can just imagine it like a wall. And in the screen, there's two slits, two openings um, where the light could possibly go go through to reach the other side. And then on the back side, there's a detector so that they can see where these electrons are actually hitting the detector when they pass through the screen. So the idea here is I can shoot these electrons out at the double slit uh, screen and see the pattern on the detector where they where they actually went through. Did they go through the one on the right? Did they go through the one on the left? What's happening here? So they did this experiment, and it, what happened sort of blew everybody's mind. Um, they would take a single electron, and they would shoot it, Remember, a single electron is going to travel in these discrete packages, this quanta. So it's only going to come out like what you might imagine, a particle, a marble, to be shot out at this screen and either hit the wall and go nowhere or hit or go through one of those slits, either on the left or on the right. So what you would expect to see is a dot on the other side of one of those slit openings to show you where did it go through. This is not what they found. 
they tried this experiment over and over and over and over again to see, you know, is are, are we going to have instances where one of these things goes through the right opening and one of them goes through the left? Uh, like, is there, a, is there a probability situation that, that it's going to go through one or the other? You know, what's the deal? What they found when they did enough of these experiments is that they created on that detector not just um, like dots that correspond to those openings, but what they found after they did enough dots is that there were all sorts of um, hits on the detector that weren't in line with the openings at all. Some of them were in between the openings. Some of them were to the left or the right of the openings. So they were getting uh, results for the experiment that they that they, they didn't know how to interpret. You know, I'm shooting these marbles through these slits, and it's not hitting the detector on the other side of the slits, on the other side of the openings, but rather sometimes it's hitting where there is no opening at all. And the only way, the only way to explain that is to say that um, the electrons were moving in a wave pattern. So that wave hit the wall. Parts of the wave bounced off the wall. Parts of the wave went through both openings to hit the detector in the back. And here's where it gets even weirder. When they do that experiment, uh, when they when they shoot those electrons over and over and over again, um, the pattern that they end up with on the uh, on the detector is what's called um, uh, an, an interference pattern. So it's something that that we know about in science. We know what it looks like. And when we when we when he saw it in the experiment, we're like, oh my gosh! Not only are these uh, are these are these quanta of of light, these electrons I'm shooting out, let's say, not only are they not um, uh, a particle like, like I would expect them to be if they're if they're a quanta. But they're kind of both. We we know that that only that ha- has to be a certain size for that electron to go out, a certain energy, and we know that it's moving as a wave. And so what we end up seeing is um, m- multiple waves interacting with each other and creating these uh, this distinct wave pattern. It looks like a striped pattern. So you have dark stripes, white light stripes, dark stripes, light stripes, and this is what they saw in the experiment. And and. W- the reason it got everybody scratching their heads is because not only did it not answer the the question or help them understand um, that that particles are waves um, or particles, but rather that they're sort of both. And nobody had any idea how to explain that. Um, some people thought that the experiment was flawed or that it was wrong. There's a lot of debate about that. Um, so this is it. This is the double slit experiment. And what it's telling us is that uh, on the quantum level, these particles really don't exist as a wave or as a particle, but somehow as both. So what what in the world does that mean? And this is one of those uh, interesting mysteries of quantum physics that, you know, you can't explain away, can't get rid of this problem. You have to find a way of incorporating the, this fact into the way you understand how the world works. That's the only way um, of making sense of it because it is what it is. There's no there's no doing away with it. So Brian Green again, he he says that that even a single photon, even a single particle of light, um, behaves like a wave. So one discrete package of light, I can't help but imagine as a as a particle as a dot that that dot behaves like a wave, okay? All right, so um, so there's another guy, 
that I talked about a minute ago when I was talking about Einstein and the um, kind of the early 1900s where these uh, quantum physicists were being kind of born. And one of the uh, leaders, um, one of the OG guys, was a guy named Niels Bohr. And Niels Bohr had a, has a quote that I just have to read. When he, when he was doing his experiments and researching quantum physics and trying to figure out what, um, what the nature of matter is, trying to understand this particle wave duality thing I'm talking about, uh, he said this. He said, everything we call real is made up of things that cannot be regarded as real. Wow. So you look around at the world around you, you look at yourself, you look, at the, you look up at the stars and the cosmos, everything around you, and yourself included, are made up of things that we could not say are real. There's nothing about them that are, that are tangible or material or part of the world. They're, they're these weird quantum clouds of probability that we don't understand. And this was Bohr's, um, in his statement, he's like, hey, the world is weird. It's weirder than you think it is. When we, when we try to figure out what the world is made of, what we find is it's made up of things that are freaking mysterious. We don't have any, we don't have any way of understanding them. They're not like the world. They're, they're not like the world. So how in the world can the world be composed of things that aren't like the world? It's a mystery. Okay. Uh, one other thing I wanted to bring up in this conversation about particle wave duality is another word called superposition, and some of you may have heard that word before. Um, it has to do with uh, uh, Edwin Schrodinger, and that's another one of those early physicists whose names you might remember because of uh, Schrodinger's cat. So some of you have heard that story, and it's a thought experiment. Uh, and I'll just describe it to you briefly here for context. So Schrodinger was trying to figure out this particle wave thing. Um, and, and so on the quantum level, these particles, these quantum particles, they, they, can, they seem to be able to exist in two states at one time, as a particle and as a wave. So Schrodinger is trying to, to, to come up with an experiment uh, to test this, and, and he has a thought experiment, and it, instead of a particle, it has to do with a cat. So, so let's, let's, let's go through this together. So you put a cat in a box, um, and you set up a trap in this box that says, um, under this particular type of quantum um, result, this poison will get released and the cat will die. Um, if that type of result doesn't occur, then the cat will be fine. So it's like this particle, this quantum um, event could have one of two different um um, you know, like I say, uh, states, either a, either a particle or a wave. So we're talking about two different states, um, and it's completely random. There's no way of there's no way of determining whether it's going to be one or the other. So Schrodinger is talking about this cat in the box, and he says, "We don't know. We can't know whether this one quantum event happened or the other. Whether the cat is alive or dead in the box um, until we open the box. So we have to open the box." to find out which one of those things happened. And here's where, and that obviously, obviously makes perfect sense. But here's where it gets weird. Um, using the analogy of a cat, we're actually talking about, you know, the quantum world here. And what, what Schrodinger's saying is that, um, um, that, the, that, that the cat exists, or that the quantum... Um, the quantum uh, event exists in 
both states at once. The cat is both alive and dead in the box until I open it. So this is the kind of weirdness that we're getting into. I know the, that the uh, that the analogy is a little bit weird. We're talking about a cat in a box, but the the takeaway is that uh, Edwin Schrödinger, mathematical genius, says in this sort of thought experiment that the cat exists in both states, dead and alive, at the same time, and until an observer observes what's happening uh, by opening the box, um, both things. Uh, have happened. Both things have happened. When you open the box and see, and 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 uh, see which one it is, that somehow you have removed that other that other possibility and, and instead made it just the one thing. That until that box is opened, it's actually both. So again, what in the Sam hell does that mean? And there's a lot a lot like this. So that's that's particle wave duality and superposition, really high level. Um, another one that that many people are familiar with, and this is one of those problems of quantum physics that we're still trying to answer. It's called the uncertainty principle. So this goes back to Heisenberg, and if if anybody's heard of Heisenberg, this is probably where you remember hearing it. Um, So the Heisenberg uncertainty principle, it says this, it says that mathematically, um, you know, Heisenberg's determined that a a particle's position and its momentum, so where it is and how it's moving, is basically impossible to know both of those things at the same time. And again, I'm talking about a particle here. So on the quantum level, it's not possible to know where a, a quantum particle is and how it's moving at the same time. You can, you can know where it is. You can know how it's moving. But you can't know both at the same time. It's mathematically impossible. So again, there's math here behind the scenes to understand this that I am really incapable of communicating to you. But what I can tell you is that the result of this experiment and this calculation is that the, the world of physics and all this kind of best and brightest scientists agree that when you try to measure a, a quantum particle's position and momentum at the same time, the same way you might do if you were trying to figure out, hey, where's Chris sitting in his podcast studio right now? You know, this, this spot, and, and how am I moving? Well, I'm not really moving. Um, you can do that with anything in the real world. But when you try to do that with something on the quantum level, the math that, that you come up with, the result, the measurement, is an, it's a cloudy, uncertain thing. It's knowable only as a probability wave. What? Okay, so I'll do my best here. So, again, you can't know where a, a quantum particle is and how it's moving at the same time. Instead, what you come up with, what the math kind of provides you with, is a, a, is, is a wave function. It's, a, it's a, a probability wave that the particle might be here or there. It might be moving this way or that way. There's a probability that it's here or there. There's a, let's say, a really high probability that it's over here, and a really low probability it's over there. But you cannot say for certain where it is. Okay, so there's this weird uncertainty in the quantum world that, that disallows us from putting the same kind of math and the same kind of assumptions that we put in the real world and apply it to these quantum particles. It can't be done. The math, the math is basically telling you that, that position and momentum don't really exist at this small level. That really it's, it's this cloudy 
wavy potential type thing. Uh, very, very weird. So you can try to imagine this uh, probability wave and that a electron that's zooming around this atom, it really, it really does, it's not, it's not a point, it's not a dot like a marble that's circling it around randomly. It's kind of all around the atom, um, all, all at once. With, with a probability of being kind of everywhere. It's very mathematical, obviously, uh, but that's how it works out that uh, we cannot understand quantum particles the same way that we understand, um, you know, everything else. Um, okay. Quantum entanglement. All right. Before I get to quantum entanglement, I want to I just ask the question. When we're talking about the uncertainty principle and, and not being able to know uh, the same sorts of things we know about objects in the, in the world, um, when we try to use the, those same calculations with very small you know, quantum things. So the question that I brought up before, and I want to bring up again, is how can material objects exist in the world that have certain momentum and certain position? I can go out and touch it. I know where it is. I can see how it's moving. Why can I have those sorts of things that are made up of particles that don't have that, that same certainty? How is that possible? How can I take a bunch of quantum particles that have no, no definite position and momentum and put them together to create a human being who has certain position and momentum? How is that possible? So this is the uncertainty principle. We have no idea. We have no idea. Okay. All right, quantum entanglement. Basically, this is this is interesting. They did these experiments with um, particles, and uh, and again, I'm going to really struggle here, but I'll do my best. So there are these all sorts of quantum particles, and you may you may have heard of some of these. You know, like um, there was a lot of talk years ago about the the God particle, the the Higgs boson. So a boson is one of them, um, and quarks are other ones, and and things like that. Um, positrons and electrons, and all these words that you may have heard before that these are all different types of uh, quantum, uh, quantum particles. Um, they, they can be entangled. So when they do these experiments, let's say you, you create two photons. And this is the way the, ex the experiment's been described, the way I can remember it. So suppose you create two photons. One goes one way, one goes the other in the same event. Because you've created these photons together, they're entangled. Now, I don't understand that well enough to give you much detail beyond that, other than to say that physicists agree that if quantum particles are created in the same event, that they're entangled. So what does that mean? Check this out. If these two particles of light, they go on in different directions, and they're separated from each other by uh, vast distances. Um, in fact, they could be separated by distances so vast that light can't even travel between them because they're further apart than light can travel, let's say, at the speed that they're going. So, you, so the idea is that you couldn't, you couldn't transmit a message, even, even on, a, on a photon of light, you know, that, that moves as fast as anything we know about light. Even if we shot that, that message uh, from, one, from one particle to the other, that it wouldn't, it wouldn't reach the other particle. So the idea is that you, you can't even communicate, you can't pass a message between one or the other particle. Here's the, here's the kicker. If you change one particle, the other particle will change to match immediately, without delay, instantly. So it's not like one particle's telling the other one, um, you know, hey, hey, twin brother, I've changed, 
so you go ahead and change with me. That, that doesn't happen. There's no delay. There's no message possible that could be communicated between one or the other. But when one changes, the other changes. And they measure this by something called spin, which is a property of proton, uh, a property of these quantum particles, and I don't understand that well enough. But you might have a spin up and a spin down or something, and you can tell if one changes from spin up to spin down, the other one does instantly without, without delay. So there's, not, there's no explanation for this. How can these particles be communicating with each other? And, and this, is the way that, this is the way that the documentary I, I, uh, I watched put it. And I thought it was interesting. How can one particle know the state the other is in? That, that, is a weird, that is a weird statement to say about a particle. How can one particle know the state the other is in? Well, that's a good question. I mean, uh, uh, again, a message can't pass between them. So how can one know? Uh, I think it's weirder to ask how a particle can know. I mean, a particle is not something that, that seems to be able to know anything. So when you ask a question, how can one particle know what, the other, what, what state the other one is in so that it can match it? H how can it know that? That is, a weird, that is a weird way of putting it. But I also think it kind of gets to the heart of this thing about consciousness, which we're going to bring up here very, very shortly. So again, one particle changes. It doesn't matter how, how distant they are from one another. The other one changes immediately to match the other one because they're entangled. All right, so there's also this, this guy, uh, this um, guy named Robert Dykroff. He works for the Institute of Advanced Study. He's one of these crazy smart physicists, theoretical physicists. Um, and he said something about entanglement that I thought was interesting. Um, he proposed that that space, you know, when we the space that we move around in, the space we see when we look up at the heavens, that space emerges from inter the interaction of entangled quantum particles. So he he actually thinks that it might be that space itself is sort of created from the interaction of particles that are entangled. Which I don't, again, very, very strange. I don't understand that. But just, just try to imagine the, the, the magic there that, that you, might have, uh, you might have on the very smallest levels these, these objects, you know, the, these particles. We don't exactly know what they are, but we think that they're, um, that we're, that they're some form of energy. So, so these particles are some form of energy. Um, and... and, and their re relationship to one another, this entanglement, it creates the space that they move around in. That the interaction between these particles, their, their entanglement, creates the space that they need to exist and propagate. What? It's amazing. It's amazing. All right, last one I want to mention is called um, the problem of vacuum energy. This is something that we don't know the answer to, just like just like entanglement, just like quantum uncertainty, and just like, you know, particle wave duality we talked about. This, this idea of qu uh, vacuum energy is this. Scientists had tried to figure out, can we, can we take everything out um, of, a, of a space? Can I, can I suck out all of the matter and energy and leave nothing? Is it possible to have a space with nothing in it? You know, it, it, is it possible? And so what they what they did was they did all these experiments, um, you know, with with a vacuum. They're they're creating like a space inside, uh, you know, a, a, a container in an experiment where everything is removed from it. There's nothing left in it. And what they find is, when they do that, 
that it's not left with nothing in it. Even though they've removed everything, there's still something there that they don't know, they don't, can't understand. It's something they call vacuum energy. So even when everything's removed from that space and there's nothing in it, there's this weird base level of energy called vacuum energy that they cannot get rid of, that is always there, kind of in the background. Well, that's a, that's a, that's a mystery that, again, science doesn't know the answer to. And I can't help but imagine the idea that, that it's impossible to have nothing, that even in, even in the, the, you know, the state of vacuum, even in a state of nothingness, that there's this background energy that's impossible to remove. That that sounds to me like it's we're bordering on a on a on a conversation about God. We're bordering on a conversation about something that's eternal, about something that is um, behind the structure of you know the cosmos that we can't get rid of no matter what. Um, and it's again, it starts to border on the same type of an idea that I've that I've formulated on this podcast about how I understand God. Okay, so a bunch of mysteries um, that basically talk about um, on the on the very smallest scales when we try to figure out what what things are really made of that there's all this uncertainty that we have um, you know we have these quantum clouds of probability we have space being created from the interaction of the of these particles um, you know we know the particles are made from energy energy um, we, we don't exactly know where that energy came from apart from saying the big bang which we don't really understand either um, but even so um, even even in, even in a state of nothingness there's still there's still this vacuum energy that we can't explain uh, not to mention dark energy and dark matter which are a whole other conversations we're not going to get into Okay. All right. So before I get to the interesting stuff, I want to talk about the fundamentals a little bit. Um, I've done that a bit already, but I want to do that a little bit more because there's some, there's some language that's important that I have to explain. So the first one is called the wave function. I don't know if, if anybody's ever studied quantum physics, you've heard this before, the wave function. What the heck is the wave function? Okay. So it's, it's basically a mathematical equation that, um, that, that mirrors the way reality is. It's a way of it's a way of coming up with a mathematical equation that describes the world and how the world is changing. So it's not enough to just describe the state the world is in right now. It has to also it has to also provide predictions about what's going to happen to the cosmos in the future and maybe what happened in the past. So this is what it is. It's a mathematical formula that describes the world. Um, it's interesting to, to mention that there aren't, um, there's lots of math behind this, but there are many possible solutions to the, uh, the math behind this wave function. Uh, and there's no agreement. There's no agreement at all. So, um, again, a wave function is this, it's a mathematical description of the quantum state of a quantum system. And from this formula, um, probabilities for the possible results of measurements can be derived. So that's like the textbook definition. Uh, it's also a function of the degrees of freedom in a system, which is a, another weird, complicated phrase that just means um, things that are quantifiable and measurable in, uh, you know, um, in the world. So there are things like position and momentum, like we talked about. So that little that little piece I just read to you actually just came right from Wiki, and uh, and in Wiki there was a. Um, uh, a picture. There was an image there of uh, like a classical idea of how particles move versus a quantum idea of how they move, 
and I was struck with kind of interesting um, uh, connection to that that uh, podcast, the solo podcast I did, where I was talking about some of these weird images for, that I got from the mystic experience and trying to understand them. And one of them was like these two waves uh, that were interacting with each other, and um, like a ticker that's moving across these waves. That, that every time the waves interact with each other, it kind of it kind of changes the trajectory of the waves. So they're they're kind of linked together. You might say entangled. And every time they, they, you know, they meet, every time they touch, that they, it, you know, it changes the system. That this was this image I had is kicking around in my head, and and listen to this, listen to this in the um, in the quantum models that that are there, um, they show that rather than just like a particle moving in a straight line, they of course show that as a wave in diff- different versions um, of of waves that answer um, or that, that are a solution to Schrodinger's equation. And um, they look exactly like I, what I just described to you from from the you know that, that mystic experience um, that I had that 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 was this image of these kind of two overlapping waves interacting with each other that this is exactly and if you guys go to the wiki uh, if you just look you know if you just type in wave function and you go to the wiki you'll see the images I'm talking about um, and it was just baffling to me to like have this image in my head. And then randomly preparing for this episode, going and looking at that and seeing those images and going, wow, that's, that's exactly what I saw. So I don't know. And maybe that's a, maybe that's a mystery. Maybe that's a coincidence, but there it is. All right. So I mentioned Schrodinger's equation. Uh, I want to tell you about that just for a second. It's something that he published in 1926. And it's an, it's an equation that governs the wave function of a quantum system. It's as simple as that. It's one of these mathematical equations that I mentioned that are solutions to this, uh, this wave function. And it does describe how, how the system evolves over time. So it gives you, um, it gives you a way of predicting uh, you know, is this is this math correct? Well, I can I can tell that by seeing what it predicts is going to happen in the cosmos, and then looking out and seeing if if, if that's actually happening. So this is a very famous uh, version. It's the Schrodinger equation. Um, another little point I wanted to make because we talked about superposition earlier is that um, physicists believe that. Um, that these wave functions can be added together, uh, that, that they can be, they can basically be combined to create new wave functions. They can also, they can also combine to form something called a Hilbert space. Again, this goes into the mathematics more than I like to, than I like to do because I don't understand it enough, but you can understand Hilbert space as a way that the, uh, math, mathematicians and physicists talk about, um, talk about space with dimensions you know again we we're accustomed to talking about three dimensions or maybe four dimensions if you're talking if you're including time Um, but you might have a space you might imagine like hypothetically a space with four dimensions like we have but you might imagine a space with five or six or 20 dimensions or one dimension or no dimensions something like that so so a Hilbert space um, is is basically that it's a space with a certain number of dimensions that you can kind of exist in, and uh, and and this is what um, this idea of superposition that you can that you can add together these wave functions to create new wave functions and maybe even to create space, and and we don't know for sure uh, whether our space is four dimensional. We 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 seem to think it is. Um, but if you ever read anything about string theory, you know, there's all sorts of ideas about how many dimensions there might actually be. 
Um, so I just make that point to talk about Hilbert space, unless you guys are doing, uh, doing research on this or, or uh, if it's of interest to you and you want to get into it, that's a word you may, you may come across. So can't talk about Hilbert space without talking about string theory. We're not going to focus a lot on string theory. It goes way beyond uh, what we want to talk about today. But string theory is a one of many attempts, and there's more than one type of string theory, by the way. But it, it, you know, it's one of many attempts to reconcile quantum mechanics, you know, the laws that govern the very smallest things, um, with gravity and general relativity, which which governs the you know how the very largest things uh, are. Because right now, the math behind quantum mechanics and the math behind um, Einstein's gravity or, or general relativity, they don't, they don't mesh. You can't, you can't come up with something that reconciles quantum mechanics to uh, general relativity. It's something that we're, scientists have been trying to do because they feel like as soon as they do that, as soon as they figure out how to make the laws that govern the very smallest things work with the laws that govern the very largest things, that they will have what they call a grand unified theory. This is, hypothetically, the goal of physics, to come up with one theory, one beautiful, elegant, simple theory that explains everything. And you might, you might imagine that as, as a formula that, that is God, something like that. That in this mathematical formula, you have condensed um, everything you need to know about how our cosmos came into came into existence and where it's going to uh, to go in the future, um, if it ends where it ends, you'll know all of that once you have a grand unified theory. Now, obviously, that's something we don't have, but what a lot of people are searching for. All right, guys, let's get to the interesting bit. All right, so he, so here's where things get interesting, and um, basically, the way I want to talk about this is trying to answer all these difficult questions of physics. And there's been a lot of people who have proposed answers. Um, nothing's been obviously proven, but there's been really brilliant people who've talked about this. And the ones I want to focus on, um, they, they basically are evidence that consciousness is integral to the physics that underpins reality. So all of this quantum stuff that we've been talking about, all these mysteries that they might actually be understood or explained if we just imagine that consciousness plays some important role in all of this and take that into account, however that's done. Because we don't understand consciousness, we don't know how to do that. So this is still a mystery. But I want to talk about um, an idea called wave function collapse. And this goes back, this is the whole reason I told you about, um, about the double slit experiment and the particle wave duality. Because... Because what Niels Bohr, who's one of those, again, uh, along with Schrodinger and Heisenberg and Einstein, one of those early physicists, what he said, and, and Heisenberg as well, that when you, that when you observe anything in a quantum system, and what they meant by that was, like, they're doing experiments. So they say, when I, when I take a measurement, that somehow that somehow that measurement interferes with the quantum system. It interferes with the calculation. So the moment, the moment, I, the moment I measure this, this quantum thing, I've changed it. So I'll never really know the answer I'm trying to get because just by, just by observing, just by measuring it, I'm changing the math. I'm, cha- I'm changing the outcome. 
So they're trying to figure out a way around that. And this is what's really interesting. And this maybe goes back to the, the Schrodinger's cat paradox that we talked about is that Niels Bohr said this, he said, what if, what if, um, you are obviously existing in this quantum system. You're, you're part of it. And when you observe it, you, you change that quantum system. What if you, what if what you've actually done is collapsed the wave function? And what, what, and the way he's describing this is Schrodinger's cat in the box. It exists as a dead cat and an alive cat. It's in both states at the same time. And maybe that's how the world is fundamentally. That's why it's like um, electrons and these, these particles are existing in these probability clouds. Maybe this is why. Because they exist in all of these states at once. But the moment, the moment you observe it, the moment you take the measurement, that you actually collapse the wave function, all of the, pro- po- the possible states it could have been in, you collapse it down into one certain state. And that's why when you open the box, you don't see a dead cat and an alive cat. You see one or the other. And that's why when they're measuring, when they're trying to measure particles in these quantum systems, you know, they don't have a, you know, um, uh, a, a particle with positive spin and negative spin at the same time. They only, they only see one or the other. And what Bohr said is that maybe, maybe the reality is that they're all of these states simultaneously and that somehow the act of observation collapses that state of being everything at once to being one thing specifically. Wow. So there was a lot of pushback on that, including, including by Einstein. Not everybody agreed. Um, this explanation um, of quantum uh, mechanics is sometimes called the Copenhagen interpretation. So if you hear that, that's what this is about, this, this idea that Niels Bohr and, uh, and Heisenberg brought up. And, but this is, this is what's interesting to me, is that the thing that's doing the observing, the thing that's taking the measurement, is, is a conscious creature. It's, it's you and me, it's a scientist. So, so might it be then that, that consciousness is playing a role here, that consciousness is part of this quantum, this quantum realm, that when I take this observation that I'm collapsing the wave function, I'm changing reality from this infinite possible cloud of things to this one specific certain thing, that I'm going from this ethereal, mysterious realm of this, this quantum level to this, to this concrete, material, physical world that we exist in. And here's, here's a note that I, that I wrote to myself and I included in here is, I said, and I, I mentioned this before on one of our other solo podcasts, but trying to understand um, the, the, the material world, the cosmos. So that's something that I usually call being. I'm trying to understand that as experience because that's, you know, that's how we understand uh, the cosmos. That's how we encounter it. We, we experience it. So I was trying to make sense of that. And I, and I said, you know, being is experienced, you know, of course. And then I say, does it exist outside of experience? Does it exist at all outside of experience? And then I, again, I just wrote down quantum physics says no. Under this, under this kind of framework, without observing or experiencing, there is no concrete being. There's only potential. So this is just, this is just amazing. The idea that consciousness plays some role 
and taking fundamental reality from this sort of state of infinite potential and making it something specific just by just by being conscious of it. Amazing. All right, so this this gets a little deeper. So if you fast forward to uh, a little bit later, I think the 30s and 40s um, and 50s, we encounter a guy named John Wheeler. And um, John Wheeler is a physicist. He's an extraordinarily um, influential and important physicist. He was um, the guy that first coined the term black hole. He was, he was the guy that uh, uh, worked on nuclear fission. Um, he picked up the general relativity stuff um, after World War II from Einstein. He's an extremely influential and important physicist, John Wheeler. Okay, John Wheeler said lots of awesome things, but two things that are very, very, very weird. And these aren't particularly popular. Um, you know, you certainly, if you look up John Wheeler, you're going to hear a whole lot more about black holes and fission and all this stuff than you are going to hear about the ones I'm going to tell you. But you'll see why I bring them up uh, here as, as I explain them. Um, so going back to this idea of wave function collapse, John Wheeler, he, he talks about something called what he calls um, the participatory anthropic principle or PAP. So this anthropic principle is a really interesting idea. Um, and this is, this is basically what he says, <clears throat> that if you, take, if you take the Copenhagen interpretation seriously, which is this, which is this wave, wave function collapse, you know, consciousness causing that collapse. If you, if you believe that sort of a thing, <clears throat> it says um, that you have to conclude be, because, no, because no phenomena can, can exist until it's observed and under, this, <clears throat> under this framework, that observers are necessary for the universe to exist. Well, he, says, he says for the universe to, to have meaning, um, but I'm not sure what he means by that. I think that's a, that's a political way of not saying uh, that you need an observer for, for the universe to exist. Um, now, I think this plays, this plays down an interesting road because you, you can start to think about, um, you can start to think about who, who that observer is or what that observer is and start thinking about consciousness in some weird and unusual ways. And I'm going to save that to the end, but I'll, I'll get there. Um, but again, here's John Wheeler saying that um, any phenomenon in the, in the material world, for that, to, for that to exist, it has to be observed because we know if it's not being observed, it doesn't exist, by, it doesn't exist in that way. It exists in some other kind of purely potential sort of cloudy way. Um, so, so for anything to exist in a concrete way, the way that you and I experience the world every day, that there has to be an observer um, observing it to make it that way. All right, next. He also says something called, <clears throat> and this is interesting because it really only comes from kind of his personal, private uh, uh, thoughts, something that was never really like written into a book or any math behind it, but it, it actually um, largely comes from a phone call that uh, a physicist named Richard Feynman, who's also extremely influential and famous, he was a student of John Wheeler, and this is something that he remembers having a conversation with him about by phone, and this was right around 1940, and he says, uh, he basically said this, um, he calls up Richard Feynman and he says, uh, hey, Richard, I know why all electrons have the same charge and the same mass, because apparently this is a mystery that they don't, they don't know the answer to, you know, they're, they're, 
there are things called electrons and things called positrons, which are the opposite charge version. And, all, you know, I don't really understand it all that well, but apparently they all have the same charge and the same mass. And, uh, and you know, uh, Wheeler must have been thinking about this for his whole career. And he calls up Richard Feynman and he says, I, I, I figured it out. And Richard Feynman says, oh, yeah, that's awesome. What, what, what did you figure out? And he says, all electrons have the same charge and the same mass because they're the same electron. I want to put an exclamation point on that, on that statement. They're the same electron. So this is called the one electron universe postulate. Uh, so you've got John Wheeler saying that, you know, you can imagine all these atoms, and we know that there are, you know, you couldn't count them all. They're, they're just numberless atoms that make up all the things in, in the world, and all of those atoms have electrons circling around them or, or uh, in these clouds around them. And, uh, and what, what John Wheeler, one of the most important physicists and brilliant mathematicians ever to walk the face of the earth, says is that it's possible that with all of the atoms that exist in the universe— that there aren't countless electrons. There's just one. And you can imagine maybe it's, maybe it's just moving so fast. Maybe it's taking advantage of some quantum characteristic that we don't understand to be a part of all of the atoms that make up the universe, to be the electron that, 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 that makes all of that possible. Um, again, I don't think that there's been a lot of, a lot of uh, further research on this particular point, but just the idea that one of these brilliant physicists would say something like this, um, even hypothetically, it's it's unbelievable. But it also, to me, rings true with something from the mystic experience. You know, if if these quantum particles, these electrons that are part of all of atoms that are necessary for all of matter to exist. If they're actually just one electron, what does that say about the idea from the mystic experience that everything is one? Now, I don't know what it says, but it's an interesting correspondence. It's interesting that it lines up. And then there's one other uh, one other one here that, that's maybe newer. It's called the holographic universe theory. So... Uh, you guys may have heard about this. There's been some articles, um, popular articles recently that talk about this idea. And it's really hard to explain. And I've heard it explained by many people, you know, Brett Weinstein and Sean Carroll and people like that that are that are these, you know, popular, uh, popular people and, and physicists. But um, it's, it's not been clear to me from any of those guys. So I'm going to do my I'm going to do my best. So you can imagine that 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 uh, the cosmos is, uh, you know, a certain uh, dimensional reality, whether it's four dimensions or not, I don't know, but it sort of seems like four to us. So imagine you've got this kind of multi-dimensional reality, and then on on certain dimensions, you've got information encoded, and that information somehow somehow projects um, projects the cosmos. It projects material reality or the space that we that material reality exists in. It projects that into the kind of higher dimensions. Um, so what you end up with is reality that's that, you know, the material world that's sort of like a hologram. It's sort of, it's sort of being projected from within itself, um, from, from what, what they call information. And it's really not clear to me what quote unquote information might be coded into, to the dimensions of our reality. Um, I mean, Jesus, I don't have no idea what that means. Uh, but, Again, I'm struck with the idea that 
information is something that's meaningful only to a knower. There has to be somebody who knows information. Free-floating information is nothing. It's no good to anybody. It's nothing. But if you have a conscious creature, information is meaning. And so how, how can you have information encoded in, in, in you know, uh, the fundamental part of our, of our existence? If it wasn't, in, if it, if it, if it, first of all, if it wasn't encoded, you know, intentionally and, and even if, and even if it, you know, and even if it was, you have to have a conscious creature there to read the information, to know the information. Otherwise, what the hell is it there for? So in all of these sort of paradoxes and all these mysteries, um, we keep coming back to the idea that consciousness is somehow involved. You know, consciousness might be involved with wave function collapse, which kind of creates the certain, you know, material world that we live in. Um, it, you know, it, it may be, um, it may be, may also be part of, um, you know, kind of the, the nuts and bolts, um, that, that causes space and time to emerge, you know, in this idea of a holographic universe, that the, that the information is somehow there for, for consciousness, for, for the knower. These are really hard to understand, but the idea that these, that these mysteries exist and that, uh, consciousness is sort of being talked about as, as, um, an important part of it. Um, this, this to me is absolutely amazing for more than one reason, for, for the reason that it corresponds to some of the mystic experience that, that I've talked about and, and I'll talk more about. Um, but also that, that these specific questions aren't really being pursued actively by physicists. And if they are, they're like in their basements on their free time. This isn't, this isn't research that people are doing in the universities and publishing and getting a bunch of attention because, because this is woo woo stuff. And, and it, you know, and it's kind of a black mark on John Wheeler's history. This, this participatory anthropic principle and the one electron universe, these are sort of black marks on his, on his untarnished, you know, uh, academic reputation. Because when you start talking about things like that, it's way too close to talking about God for modern scientists to appreciate. They, they don't want to be pigeonholed and, to, and made, to be, made out to be some kind of a kook or something that's unreliable or unscientific because you're starting to stretch your science into the realm of consciousness where, you know, uh, where it's very, very difficult to avoid talking about God. So it's a shame, but interesting nonetheless. All right, so this idea of holographic universe, there's another phrase that, that's tossed around with this idea, and that's that, that reality could actually be representational in nature or even digital in nature. Um, Again, I think that's more of a more of an of an analogy than anything else. But the fact that a, that a, that a holographic universe theory um, is called representation representational in nature um, obviously strikes a chord with me because I my understanding of um, of God uh, and and its relationship to um, being to to, to you know um, reality uh, is something like that. It's representational in nature. Um, so I'll talk about that more, but I just think it's I just think it's interesting that here again we're seeing that um, that idea of representation, which is something that consciousness does. Now going back to the explanation I gave before about this uh, with Jordan Peterson, uh, again a psychologist, talking about how people that people project um, they have these psychic stand-ins in their in their mind so that they can understand things that they don't understand. 
and uh, and I have thoughts that these sorts of projections um, that uh, that what's what's projected in them are representations. So the fact that that the universe might be representational to me might actually be linked uh, might actually be linked to that. Um, all right, so there was an article from the Scientific American that came out a while back. I think it was 2003, and it was talking about the holographic universe. Um, and there was uh, there was a quote from that that was really interesting, and it said uh, that the research that they, that they were doing that this article came from um, it, it regards the physical world as made of information, with energy and matter as incidental. So whatever experiments they were doing to come to this conclusion um, led them to believe that 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 the physical world deep down is actually made somehow of information and that the energy and matter that we see all around us is sort of a byproduct of that. That's, that's, that's really, really hard to understand, but it's also really, really interesting. You know, what, what is information without a knower? Without consciousness, what is it? I don't, I don't know that it's anything. So this is what I mean. All right, so I want to talk about uh, Robert Dygroff again, uh, the guy from the Institute for Advanced Study. This, this I actually saw in a different documentary called uh, Einstein's Quantum Riddle. Um, and, uh, and, and he makes the suggestion, this, this Robert Dycroft guy, um, to, to kind of reconcile quantum mechanics to general relativity. This is, that, this is that grand unified theory that the physicists are looking for. This, this is the holy grail of physics. He suggests a maybe as an answer to that. He says, perhaps space as we know it emerges from networks of entangled quantum particles and create the illusion of 3D space. Wow. So here we have... Again, one of the one of the world's most uh, you know brightest physicists um, talking about um, well, he's talking about entanglement here, obviously, um, but also in the sense of a hol- of a holographic universe that the illusion of three D space might be created strictly by the in- this entanglement that's happening between uh, between all the particles that make up the world. Now, entanglement's interesting because. Uh, well, you know what? Before before I go there, I want I want to I want to bring in Sean Carroll into this conversation. Um, Sean Carroll is another one of these popular physicists. Uh, he's a professor at Caltech. Um, he's been on Joe Rogan's podcast a few times. He's had he's done lots of documentaries and interviews. But you guys can go look at uh, Joe Rogan's uh, episode thirteen fifty two with Sean Carroll, where he talks about the wave function um, that we talked about earlier. I don't know if you remember, but I was talking about how the uh, how the wave function, uh, according to superposition, that you can you can sort of um, add them together to make new wave functions, and maybe even to make a Hilbert space, which is what I just mentioned. Robert Dycroft talking about that entanglement might actually create the illusion of of space, of three D space. Um, but Sean Carroll, on the other hand, he he doesn't say he kind of says something contrary to that. He's he's basically saying that rather than wave wave functions being able to be combined uh, to create new ones or to be able to create Hilbert space, that really there's only one wave function. And he says it very a matter of fact. There's only one wave function. The wave function describes reality. There's only one reality. There's only one wave function. Existence exists as a singular wave function at the quantum level. That's what he says. 
And again, I'm struck here with the idea that there's only he's emphasizing there's only one wave function. And the mystic experience also, the intuition you get from that is that everything is one. So just like Wheeler talking about the one electron, uh, one electron hypothesis and Sean Carroll kind of emphasizing that the best way to understand the wave function, the, the formula that, that explains reality, is as one formula. We can't, we can't have you know, this, this piecemeal approach. There's only one reality. There's only one formula that, that explains um, you know, how it got here and where it's going. Um, he also explained that the act observing, the act of observing, that's what entangles the observed with the observer. So we were talking about, you know, the collapsing the wave function and making the observation to turn something that's this potential cloud into something certain. Um, that that the act of observing is what is, is actually entangling the observer with the observed. Um, I have a really hard time believing that this entanglement is what physicist says it is uh, understanding it the way that they are trying to understand it that that one particle somehow gets associated with another one so that they're always in the same state you know forever forevermore that 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 might actually be better explained by saying that they're they're not multiple entangled particles but they're one they're one of course if they're one and one of them changes, the other one instantly changes. Of course, because there isn't an other one. There's only one. Well, that answers, that solves that fucking riddle right there. So there might be something more to entanglement here. Um, Sean Carroll also says that all things are entangled with all other things. He also says that they're, that they're, that, that, it's more powerful with things that are in close relation to one another. Uh, and, you know, maybe that has some implications about gravity or something else, but that all things are entangled with one another. So again, if all things are entangled and observing is what causes entanglement, the, the act of observing, how in the world can we suggest that the world is anything other than consciousness? The thing that observes. And if that's the case, the thing that observes isn't entangled with other things. It's just one thing. And that's what the mystic experience tells you. And this seems to be the low-hanging fruit, the answer to some of these questions of quantum physics that nobody is latching onto because all of these academics are afraid to be called a fool. They're afraid to be wrong. They're afraid to be criticized. They're afraid to be called, you know... A, a, a believer in God, you know, they don't, because it's not popular in, sci in the scientific community. It's the easiest way to discredit you. Just like the media today calling you racist or sexist. It's, it doesn't have to mean anything. It's just the kibosh. It's just, we're not doing this. And that's what science has done. They've separated themselves from God so long ago and so powerfully, you know, since the middle ages, let's say that, um, or at least the Renaissance that, um, uh, that we, we, we basically created this, this area of um, exploration that no scientist is willing to, willing to tackle. Well, I'm doing that now, you guys. So, so take it for what it's worth. Okay, so there's um, one other thing I wanted to talk about. Uh, it's, I don't really know how to, how to fit this into the, to the narrative, but, um, but I did hear on from several different places, and I believe uh, one of Brian, Brian Green's books, uh, that he was talking about the history of um, 
you know, like physics and, and how we came across these problems and kind of how all the different fields emerged from these, these different observations and problems that we couldn't answer. It's really interesting to see the history behind it. Um, and, and one of the things he noted is that when people were messing around in the early days with electricity, that what they found out was that if you change a magnetic field, that it creates electricity. And then later on, they found that if you change an electric field, that it creates magnetism. And I thought that was interesting because here, because, because really what, what they did was they, they learned when they learned these two things, that really electricity and magnetism aren't different things, that they're actually one thing. And we call that electromagnetism today. But back then they didn't know that. They, they were two completely different phenomena. They had no indication that they were related at all. And I, I think what I found interesting about this was two things, that, that we have, again, kind of this consolidation of, of uh, forces that when we understood that these multiple things existed, uh, electricity and magnetism, that we ended up learning that they're not, one, they're not different things, they're one thing, and that we continue to see this, the oneness of reality, over and over and over again. And I think that's interesting. But there's also... A, there's also a thing in here that's interesting that I don't understand very well, and I'm just going to tell you the best as best I can, that has to do with creating something from nothing, something like that. And the idea here is that you have this field, um, and just like a quantum field where we're talking about um, you know, this, this field of probability. Here we have this field, um, this electric field or magnetic field or electromagnetic field, you might say. Um, and... And I'm one, and I wonder how do, how do I put this? It's very difficult when you don't understand something well enough to to put it into words. Um, and that's what I was trying to get across in that podcast I did about the mystic experience and the images from those trying to make sense of this. But go, going back to this something from nothing thing, the idea that um, you have these fields uh, that are part of the kind of um, structure of reality. And that all you have to do is change the field somehow <clears throat> to create energy, to create this force, whether it's magnetism or electricity, that all you have to do is change the field to create this, this force, this power. Um, and of course, we know that we need force. We need power. We need these things um, to have action in the world for things to move, for things to, you know, to be, to, to heat up, to cool down, for, for, for things to interact, that we need that. So, so here, the idea is that if there's this, <clears throat> if there's this underlying, you know, um, field um, that, that underpins all of kind of quantum mechanics, and there's a way of changing that field, that what we might get from that is some spontaneous, emergence of energy, the same way you do with changing in electric fields or magnetic fields. And I just wondered, you know, what that might be um, for, for, you know, in the context of a uh, probability wave, in the, prob in, the, in, the, in the context of, um, you know, quantum mechanics. Um, and I'll talk about that in just a bit. I'll kind of try to circle back to that. Uh, and I think what, where this is going to lead where this is going to lead me to is a conversation about um, a type of physics called panpsychism. And there's a, there's a, um, a physicist named Philip Goff, and he's written a few books <clears throat> on this topic. Uh, and he, he basically just says that, hey, um, 
we're not going to make any more progress in physics until we until we come to understand that consciousness is a ubiquitous part of the natural world. Consciousness is everywhere. And it's called panpsychism and and you know pan is a Greek word that means all. And psyche it means consciousness. So what Philip Goff is saying here is that it's not just that consciousness is everywhere. It's that consciousness is everything. Panpsychism. Consciousness is everything. This is what he's saying. And again, I'm just struck powerfully by how much that lines up with what you understand in the mystic experience. So, you know, maybe that consciousness is the most fundamental constituent of reality. It's it's the thing that lies underneath, you know, the quarks and the and the gluons and the electrons and all these things that that, you know, that we've uh, discovered at the smallest levels that even below that, kind of this pre-material ethereal basis for all of that is, is consciousness. Um one thing that this this panpsychism does is it offers a um it improves, really, the best theories that we have on uh, uh, quantum physics. It, it improves them by taking into account things that all of our existing theories of quantum physics can't um, account for. Things like subjective experience, right? So how is quantum physics going to explain, you know, um, your your emotions, your values, your motivations, um, you know, your interpretations of your sense experience. Like all of those things are, are they're not knowable from a formula. It's not something that, you know, it goes beyond strictly energy and matter, and, and it's in another realm altogether. But if you bring consciousness into that kind of quantum phys- uh, physics um, uh, realm, if you insert that in, that suddenly you have answers to those really difficult problems. So what it boils down to is that <clears throat> we may actually exist in a reality that emerges from consciousness and and transforms to become the cosmos, ultimately you and I. It may be holographic, and like the particle wave duality of matter, only seems to exist concretely or, or independently. But really, it exists nested within consciousness. And this brings me to the idea of projection and representation that I talked about before and I brought up a, a little bit ago, that that might be the mechanism, that this, this, this idea of projection and representation, it might be the mechanism uh, for being, for, for material reality to, to exist. Um, I'll talk. I'll talk about that in just a second. Um, the other thing is that that rea- that the reality we exist in may may really be one, and and obviously validating the mystic, the mystic experience, you know, one wave function, like Sean Carroll said, uh, a unity of forces. So it's not it's not just electricity and magnetism. It's electromagnetism. It's a, it's not just you know uh, general relativity and. Um, uh, you know, in quantum mechanics, it's a unified, grand unified theory that what we're searching for is the oneness of reality. And not to mention the one electron theory that John Wheeler mentioned. And then this idea of entanglement, uh, you know, as, obser- as uh, by observation, that, you know, that we can trace back to Niels Bohr and, and Sean Carroll also. Um, so it may be all of this stuff is, is true. All of it has to do with, um, with consciousness's sort of role in, in reality. And um, 
and tying this to the math that underlies physics that allows us to do things like, you know, create nuclear nuclear energy and send send spaceships to Mars, like the, the math that, that underlies that, that all of this stuff I'm talking about with consciousness and the mystic experience, they all line up. And I cannot believe that that's a coincidence. I think that's s- significant. All right, so this idea of uh, representation and projection that I talked about several times, I'll do my best to explain to you here. Um, so maybe we'll start by talking about recapping the mystic experience. So in the mystic experience, what you what you understand is that everything is one. And so consciousness is all that there is. You also know, because you're, you're a conscious creature, that consciousness experiences. That's what it does. So if, you, if consciousness is all that there is, and consciousness experiences, what, what is it experiencing exactly? And the answer is that it's experiencing itself. This is that, this is that self-consciousness, the idea of self-consciousness. Consciousness experiencing itself. Well, how does it do that exactly? And this is what I think... This is what I think representation and projection is. So in the world of psychology, and we're talking about Jordan Peterson uh, earlier in this context, then he says you have to have this sort of placeholder in your psyche uh, for anything unknown so that you can map onto that thing whatever you learn about that thing. So there's this, there's this, there's this something in your psyche that's projected there. Um, and, and so the, what I imagine here is consciousness projecting a representation of itself, because that's all that there is, and experiencing that representation. So this, in my mind, again, I don't know that I understand that thoroughly. I obviously don't, but you can understand what what I'm saying really high level, that consciousness is all there is. So if it experiences itself, that how it's doing that is by projecting uh, a representation of itself and then encountering itself that way. Now, I cannot help but imagine that when God represents itself and, and, and encounters itself, that what that is, is being. That's you and I and the cosmos. We are, as I've said before, the experience that God is having. So this is, this is how I understand it. Okay, so, um, so the other thing to talk about is that experience, it changes or transforms the experiencer. Right, so any any experience you have is going to change you in some way. Um, you know, the, an example. You know, we could give all sorts of examples. You know, you fall in love, you scrape your knee. Both examples change you. One of them is important. One of them is minor, but both of them change you. You fall in love, you become a person who knows what it's like to fall in love. You scrape your knee, you become a person who understands pain and consequences and all that stuff. So there is no experience that doesn't that doesn't change you. And we, we can take this all the way to the quantum level by reminding ourselves that observations impact the quantum system. They collapse the wave function. Observation, consciousness does that. So you have experiences. Those experiences change the experiencer. Okay? Consciousness observes itself, and that changes itself. Now, if I'm an observer, if I'm a physicist, and I'm observing a quantum you know, process... And my observation, just by observing it, changes that, that process. This is what I'm sort of imagining. I'm imagining that what God has done um, by experiencing itself, by being conscious, that we, as sort of the experience God is having, 
are going through that same transformation, that change that, that, that experience changes us into, that God is transforming and we are transforming. And the change in the experiencer, it creates a change in its representation. And I think that its representation, that's the thing that I call being, that's the cosmos, but it's you and me also. And this is sort of what I, what I meant talking about the mystic experience and trying to relate, um, you know, the cosmos to God or, or being to God or you and me as God, understanding that, that this has something to do with it. You know, self-consciousness, that, that what God is doing is experiencing itself into being, and we are that being. I also think that this, that this, I had this sort of, again, maybe another image in my mind that I'm, that I'm struggling with, I'm trying to understand, that when consciousness transforms, um, that there is a kind of a self-perpetuating system of cause and effect between consciousness and its self-representation between God and, and being. Um, that this process or system or interaction, this back and forth between consciousness and its, and its representation, that that, whatever that is, that's responsible for being. That's something that I call the being generator. And I don't have, a, I don't have any way of, uh, I don't have a better way of expressing what that is other than by calling it self-consciousness. When God experiences itself. Now there was an article that came out not long ago, maybe maybe a year or so ago. Uh, it, the title of the article, I can't remember where I saw it. The title of the article says "Physics Shows That Imperfections Make Perfect," and there was a lady named um, um, Adelson Motter, uh, professor of physics at Northwestern University, um, and she did uh, some some special research that she was reporting on. And uh, what she says is she that it, the uh, research explains that identical entities, that they naturally behave identically. And this is true, you know, on the quantum level. And then it says, until they start interacting. When identical entities interact, they often behave differently from one another. So I think this ties in. I mean, you might imagine uh, two electrons, you know, they, they, they might, again, expect them to behave um, identically because they're the same thing, let's say. Uh, but as soon as they interact with one another, then then the two electrons behave differently from one another, and I think this ties in really well. This you know particular experiment in in physics, it ties in really well to that idea of representation and projection. That if God is if God is the thing that's experiencing itself and the only thing that exists, that the thing it's experiencing it, it's self representation, that it it would. Like, like I mentioned, that experience would change consciousness and its self-representation because that's what experience does. So here you say, again, from the, from the perspective of uh, this physics experiment that um, Professor Motter is, is talking about here, um, that, that in, a, in a quantum system, um, particles will behave identically. But the moment they interact, the moment they experience one another, then, then they change. Then you have transformation. And that is what the world is built from. You know, that, you know, the, the transformation of our DNA is what drives the, you know, the changing of the species. The transformation of the, you know, the uh, gases and stars is what causes the, you know, the life cycle of those. I mean, transformation is at the heart of reality. It's something that in physics they call entropy. It's, it's f absolutely fundamental. The, the, the world could not exist without it. 
And I cannot help but think that that is evidence for this idea of a being generator as I've explained it. It's evidence that consciousness not only uh, answers some of these difficult questions of physics, um, but that, uh, that it opens up a whole new um, realm of study and way of understanding ourselves and the world. So, I don't know what else to add to that, guys. I appreciate your patience. I know this is a difficult conversation, um, especially the bit about representation and uh, projection and self-consciousness and all that sort of stuff. But I hope it made some sense. I'll try to continue to talk about this and make it more and more clear. Uh, But I'll just leave you with this. Remember, we are the experience that God is having.